peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of sign. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. Well, this episode's getting finished by the skin of my teeth. I'm literally recording this intro the morning of release day. The past few weeks have been filled with long overdue family time and very last minute big changes with people driving long distances and being cautious so that we could make it happen while staying responsible in terms of that little old virus we got going round. But it was so wonderful to spend time with the complete family unit, and I was able to get some October by May stuff done. My brother David recorded some atmospheric piano music on the family piano that I'll be using in an upcoming ep, and he also recorded a voice for the next episode, Tish. He's a ridiculously multi-talented human, who also does amazing work at the Los Angeles Food Bank, which, by the way, is always accepting donations. Hint, hint. I was able to see the extended family as well, including our author, Edward T. May, who provided me with a few unpublished stories that will premiere here on October by May. As for those last-minute big changes, I was supposed to be back in New York City now, But less than 24 hours before the flight, decisions were made, flights were canceled, and confusion and disorientation has ensued. The good side to all of that is I get to stay in beautiful Colorado, my home state, for a bit longer. Maybe a lot longer. Who knows? Do you know? Do you know what I'm doing or where I should be living? If so, please could you let me know? It's a puzzle that needs solving. All the different variables of life in 2020. Hopefully, that puzzle isn't as difficult to solve as those our characters are faced with today. Like me, our first protagonist is trying to solve the puzzle of how to achieve his goals. What pieces need to fall into place? What decisions need to be made? How does he go about achieving his ultimate goal? There's one big difference, though. While I'm trying to solve the puzzle of pursuing my life, his puzzle is how is he going to go about pursuing his own death? The death of compulsion. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God. God. How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. William Shakespeare, Hamlet. Your history indicates you made your first attempt at age... Let me see. Yes, at age 13, the man remarked as he thumbed through a sheaf of papers. I nodded my head, but as the man was not looking at me, he didn't notice the action. I said nothing. Well, he prompted, 
still looking at my file. I watched the dust mote swim in the sunbeam as it streaked through the window. There seemed to be so many of them. Enough to choke a man? I thought you were stating a fact, not asking a question. I said. What I was doing was attempting to draw you into a beneficial discussion concerning your... impulses. He said evenly, as he glanced at his watch. He seemed afraid to look at me, this man of learning, as if my tendency to attempt suicide might be contagious by vision alone. He wore a white lab coat with a plastic name tag attached to the chest pocket. The pocket wilted under the weight of the name tag. I eyed the lab coat. It seemed sturdy enough, but it's hard to tell just by looking at something if it will do the job. One sleeve could be tied to an overhead light fixture and the other sleeve wrapped securely around my neck. But would it support my body weight? As I pondered the question, the man raised an arm to scratch the back of his head. I could see the seam in the armpit was unraveling. I concluded the lab coat would never do. The whole lab coat thing is true, isn't it? I asked. He pushed his glasses back up the bridge of his nose with his pen and looked at me for the first time since entering the room. I beg your pardon? I think it's interesting that you guys actually wear lab coats, I informed him. I always thought it was a Hollywood invention, you know, for effect. But I guess it's really true, isn't it? I leaned across the table and lifted his name tag so I could read it. Carter? Or is it Mr. Carter? Is that your first name or your last name? I asked. Before Carter could answer my question, another man entered the room. He didn't bother to look at me as he bustled over to Carter. Excuse the interruption, Chuck, the newcomer said to Carter. I was just curious if you'd asked him yet about the EM exposure, he added, acting as if he and Carter were the only people in the room. Carter, his forehead wrinkling, glanced at the man. The what? EM exposure, the man repeated. Have you asked him yet? What are you talking about, Dan? Carter said irritably. I spied Carter's pen as he laid it down on the table between us. You know... The study advanced a few years ago linking low-frequency electromagnetic fields and suicide, Dan reminded Carter. I made some mental calculations on how far the pen, if thrust through my eye, would penetrate into the brain. Carter still seemed confused by Dan's invasion. The EM exposure lowered the melatonin levels? Uh, yes, yes, I remember, Carter said quickly. No, I haven't asked him. I concluded the pen was not long enough to inflict a fatal wound. It would never do. Oh, very well, I'll ask him. Now please go, Carter said. Dan minced out the door. Carter and I were once again alone in the room. He ransacked his briefcase for a moment before producing a form and laying it on the table. He began asking questions from the form in a hurried, mechanical tone reflecting his impatience. In the course of your occupation, are you exposed for prolonged periods of time to electromagnetic fields? Carter intoned. For example, do you work in a power plant, a hospital, or a machine shop? My occupation for the past year had consisted of sitting in a state-run institution for the insane, the target for a gaggle of doctoral students. I paused before answering, just so Carter would think I was thinking about the question. No, I finally said. Carter checked off a box on the form, and then asked the next question. In the course of your hobbies, are you exposed for prolonged periods of time to electromagnetic fields? My hobbies were necessarily limited to fields of endeavor excluding sharp points or edges, etc. Hmm. 
Can you give me an example? I asked. Carter sighed testily, <sighs> just as I hoped he would. Oh, computers, for instance. Do you spend a lot of time in front of a computer screen? Again, I paused while I considered the question carefully. Hmm, what constitutes a lot of time? Carter rolled his eyes. <sighs> Let's say, uh, eight hours a day. I shook my head. Nope. Do you sleep with an electric blanket? I couldn't justify a hesitation before answering that question. No. Carter scanned the questionnaire. Well, I've got an electric toothbrush. Does that count? I asked perversely. Carter thrust the form back in his briefcase. I'm glad to see your wit has remained undimmed through all your suicide attempts. It seems to be honed to a fine edge despite the vicissitudes. Sounds like there might be a connection between the two. Maybe you ought to do a study, I remarked. I'll consider the suggestion, Carter said sarcastically. In the meantime, let's return to your first attempt. It came when you were 13, your first year as a teenager. Carter removed his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Adolescence is a rather turbulent time in the lives of most people. The transition from childhood to young adulthood is fraught with a number of impediments to emotional well-being. There's a great deal of inner turmoil one must deal with, and there's not always a person around to confide in. Carter put his glasses back on and looked at me. He, of course, expected me to admit to such feelings. But I said nothing. He continued. At the age of 13, many people feel their parents don't understand them or what they must deal with each day. Their emotions would be a good example. Peer groups at that stage of life can be extremely exclusive, admitting into their inner circle only those people who conform without question to the will of the majority. Taken together, these circumstances oftentimes translate into feelings of isolation. These feelings of isolation, in turn, can easily lead to thoughts of suicide. Do you feel this accounts for your first attempt? Was it the loneliness, the overwhelming isolation? No, I said emotionlessly. Then why? Why did you try to kill yourself? Because I wanted to die, I said, without a trace of sarcasm. Yes, but did you want to die because you were lonely? Did you want to die because of a failed relationship? Did you want to die because you were rejected? I wanted to die because I had an urge, a yen, a longing, a desire, a craving. To die. Carter, at first frustrated by my apparent lack of cooperation, soon realized I was being candid with my response. You're telling me you truly believe the circumstances surrounding your suicide attempt were irrelevant? You feel your behavior would have been the same regardless of the world around you. That's what I think, I replied. Carter's interest was piqued, but he was not yet convinced. Your case history indicates you've attempted suicide on no less than 11 separate occasions. That's quite an impressive statistic, Carter commented. I shrugged. Just a knack. How do you account for the fact you're still alive? Many people who attempt suicide really have no desire to kill themselves. They're simply seeking attention. As a result, their attempts to do themselves bodily harm are uniformly unsuccessful. However, it's your contention. You have no motive to commit suicide, such as acquiring attention, correct? That's correct. Then if all of your suicide attempts have been due to something inside you, something urging you to commit suicide, don't you think you would have been successful by now? 
I do seem to have defied the law of averages, haven't I? I returned. But you have no explanation. Again, I shrugged. Just lucky, I guess. Or unlucky, depending on your point of view. Maybe it takes practice. Maybe I've got a guardian angel. Maybe the tools of the trade just weren't up to par. The razors, ropes, carbon monoxide, etc. I took a deep breath. Maybe I'm just plain incompetent, I finished. Who knows? Carter nodded slowly, as if appraising my answer. He jotted down some notes, picked up his things, and left. After that meeting, a lot of people became interested in me. I guess I was a rare case. It turned out I was one of those people who had no motive to commit suicide. It was simply a compulsion. I didn't want to kill myself because I felt worthless or lonely or inferior or useless or paranoid or evil. I wanted to kill myself because something was pushing me in that direction. I felt a need to do it. Kind of like a kleptomaniac is compelled to steal. Of course, I wasn't the first to have the problem, but I was different from the others. I was different because I was, well, because I was still alive. Somehow, some way, I was still alive. I was a walking, breathing laboratory. I became one huge sample to be studied. At first, I was naive enough to believe they were concerned about me. I thought they wanted to study me in order to find a cure to the problem of compulsive suicide. They took fingernail pairings, skin samples, blood samples, urine samples, hair samples, just about every type of sample you can imagine, and some you probably can't. Of course, they really didn't care about curing my compulsion. The plan was to find out the cause, replicate it, and then market it to the military. I could just picture the generals in the Pentagon literally drooling at the thought of thousands of enemy soldiers killing themselves. I didn't like it, but what could I do about it? Well, I'll tell you what I did about it. The idea came to me one day when a nurse came in to take yet another blood sample. What, again? I asked. That's right, time for another sample, she said merrily. If you take many more samples, you're going to... Going to what? She asked as she went about her task. Oh, never mind. I just have to get my quota of complaining in for the day. I returned. It was then I conceived of a plan to hoist the miserable creatures on their own petard. Whatever that means. I asked for and received permission to use the computer in the library. Naturally, my activities were monitored by an attendant, but... After making sure I went to an innocent website, he lost interest in me and settled down to a nap in a comfortable chair. I sent messages to all the branches of the military. I notified the CIA as well for how could they pass up the chance of making their political assassinations honest-to-goodness suicides instead of merely making them look like suicides. I also informed the members of Congress via their website about the potential ability to rid themselves of troublesome political rivals, neatly and cleanly. Organized crime bosses, oh, you'd be amazed at the websites out there, environmental extremists, animal rights extremists, political extremists, extreme extremists. Just about anyone with a gripe against someone else I could think of was informed of the pot of gold awaiting them at the end of the rainbow. I carefully arranged a schedule, each party being given a 15-minute window of time in which to visit me and take their samples. Then, 
On the following visitor's day, the fun began. I encouraged each visitor to take an especially generous blood sample, as well as whatever other samples they desired. The hospital staff eventually figured out what was going on, but by that time, I was only a fingernail paring away from death. As I slip into unconsciousness and on into death, I can hear them pacing near my bed, wringing their hands and muttering something about killing the goose that laid the golden egg. I guess this proves I managed to live as long as I did because I was incompetent at suicide. I simply had to let those practiced in the art of killing have a go at it. Well, you gotta congratulate success, right? Uh, nah, I'm not going to congratulate a successful suicide. Luckily, the next puzzle is one that we may feel more comfortable rooting for. Joey Greenlee's parents were murdered right in front of him, and their killer has yet to be caught. Luckily, someone is putting the pieces together. Someone is sifting through the seemingly unconnected material to get at the truth, and that someone is eight-year-old Joey himself. Puzzles. Though this be madness, yet there's method in it. William Shakespeare, Hamlet. Dr. Boris Kaminsky placed the piece of newspaper on the desk. He read the words on the crescent-shaped fragment, studied the font, and examined the boldness of the print. He opened a complete newspaper and began leafing through the pages. At intervals, he would stop and compare the fragment with an article in the newspaper, then continue with his search. Eventually, he found the article where the scrap had originated and carefully recorded his findings in a logbook. He replaced the scrap of newspaper on Joey Greenlee's desk. Dr. Kaminsky then returned to his office and found Detective Walter Franklin waiting for him. Sorry, I kept you waiting. Kaminsky apologized. Franklin waved off the apology. What's up? He grumbled. You said you had something that might interest me? As you know, Joey's been with us for a year now ever since his parents were murdered. For the first nine months, he did nothing. And I mean that in the literal sense. After waking in the morning, he would sit in his room until breakfast. After eating, he would return to his room and sit. The process would be repeated for lunch and dinner. After dinner, he would return to his room and go to sleep. Yeah, I know. Franklin interjected. I'd come here every so often to see if he'd snapped out of it, see if he could tell us who killed his folks. After a few months, I gave up. About three months ago, I noticed he started to go to the recreation room. At first, he would just sit in the corner. He wouldn't even watch television. Then, about a week later, he began taking an interest in the newspaper. I decided to keep a close eye on him. One day, I saw him tear a fragment out of the paper and take it back to his room. When he repeated the same actions the next day, I decided to keep a logbook, documenting the day and date of the newspaper and the exact articles he took the pieces from. I think his actions are a form of therapy. I believe he's trying to heal his emotional scars by confronting the very thing that damaged them. I'm sure there's something in those articles, some 
clue that will help us identify the person who murdered Joey's parents. Come on, Doctor, Franklin chided. The kid's seven years old. Well, I guess he's eight by now. Still, I don't even know if he can read. But even if he can, I mean, why newspapers? Why not kid books or coloring books? My records indicate he was an exceptionally gifted child. His teacher assures me he could read better than most third graders. He's very selective. He doesn't tear out items at random. It's obvious he's looking for specific information. He carefully examines every page of the newspaper. It's not uncommon for him to take an entire day with one paper. He'll sometimes go a week without removing anything, then in a single day he'll tear out three scraps. There's a definite thought process behind his actions. <sighs> Franklin sighed. Look, doctor, I'm going to level with you. I'm not big on psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy, and psychobabble in general, no offense intended. Kaminsky opened his mouth, preparatory to voicing an objection, when Franklin raised a hand. Now, wait a minute. I didn't say I wasn't going to do anything. I'm going to take what you've got and I'll go through the motions. Not because I think there's anything to it, but because I don't want anyone to accuse me of not doing all I could to find the killer. Though not overjoyed, Kaminsky accepted Franklin's response without argument. He had the pages of his logbook copied and handed them to Franklin. Kaminsky also had Joey's collection of newspaper scraps copied for Franklin's use. I'll let you know if I turn up anything, Franklin promised. The next day, Sunday, Joey collected but a single scrap of paper. Kaminsky continued to closely monitor Joey's activities. However, for the balance of the week, Joey did not engage in his mysterious pastime. Instead, he gathered all his scraps together and adjourned to the recreation room where he sat and brooded. At the end of the day, he would take his collection and return to his room for the night. Upon waking in the morning, Joey would once again go to the recreation room and sit down on the floor amidst the bits and pieces of newspaper. On Saturday, Franklin and his partner, David Stouffer, paid a visit to Kaminsky's office. Kaminsky, his back to the door, was watching Joey's progress via a television screen. Excuse me, doctor, Franklin said upon entering Kaminsky's office. Kaminsky turned. You know my partner, Detective David Stouffer? Of course, good to see you again, Kaminsky said as he and Stouffer shook hands. Could you direct me to the nearest restroom, doctor? Stouffer asked. Take a left out of my office and then a left at the next corridor. Stouffer excused himself. Franklin's attention was drawn to the television screen. What's Joey up to? He's sorting through his collection, or arranging it. Somehow, I'm not quite sure since he's only just begun. Kaminsky informed him. Did you find anything? Franklin tossed a folder on the desk. I've looked through it all. Franklin muttered with a shake of his head. I personally eyeballed everything you gave me, and I couldn't find any relationship between them or any association with Joey or his family. What about a computer program? I fed it into a computer too, Franklin assured him. But there must be some connection. How can there be a connection between an increase in the price of crude oil and the winner of the Cy Young Award? Or between a used car advertisement and the weather in Honolulu? Or between troop deployments in the Middle East and a recipe for peach cobbler? I get the point, Kaminsky said irritably. Still, I can't shake the feeling- Look. If he knows who the killer is, then why doesn't he just tell us? Or, if the experience was so traumatic he can't or won't talk, why doesn't he write the name down? Why the rigmarole with the newspapers? 
Kaminsky shook his head. Joey doesn't think in terms of crime and punishment the way we do. If Joey thought for an instant the act of finding the person who murdered his parents and putting that person in jail would bring his parents back to life and restore his world, you probably wouldn't be able to shut him up. Also, you need to consider he was only seven when it happened. Children at that age entertain all sorts of delusions. I, for one, believe my parents never lied. To this day, I remember what a shock it was when I learned they did lie and they weren't perfect. It's also common for children to believe the father possesses superhuman strength, the mother unlimited stamina. They're sure their parents are capable of protecting them from any and all harm. Then, in one terrible night, Joey watched as his world was torn out by the roots. When he discovered his protectors were incapable of protecting themselves, his concept of how the world worked was derailed. The contradiction between his perceptions and reality was simply too much for him to accept. He didn't have the knowledge, the experience to reason it out, to to reconcile the opposing ideas. The world he knew does not, indeed cannot exist anymore. Where does that leave him? Where does he go from here? Franklin rubbed the stubble on his chin with the back of his hand. If you write about Joey and he doesn't care whether or not we catch the killer, then why is he tearing clues about his identity out of the paper? Franklin demanded. Kaminsky stood and began pacing. Joey knows we can't help him. He knows it because we can't bring his parents back to life, but he also knows, at least subconsciously, he must grapple with the monster, the destroyer of his life. As long as the monster remains anonymous, it can strike again. However, if Joey can pin the beast down, specify, identify, then he can avoid the monster in the future. So, after an interval of time has passed, when he feels he's ready, he initiates his own peculiar brand of self-help, his own therapy. He begins to focus on the cause of his problems. However, doing so directly would be too painful, so he approaches the subject obliquely. He tests the waters, he sees something in the newspaper relating to the killer, and tears it out. If the memories this action dredges up are bearable, he repeats the process. In this stepwise fashion, he's undergoing a catharsis. He's repairing his world. None of this is being done for our benefit, but if we're clever, we can take advantage of the information Joey is producing. Kaminsky explained. Franklin didn't respond. Curious. Kaminsky glanced at him. Franklin was staring slack-jawed at the television screen. Kaminsky turned. On the floor of the recreation room, Joey was putting the finishing touches on a portrait in black and white he'd managed to construct with his collection of newspaper scraps. Measuring eight feet across, the face was indiscernible when seen from a short distance. Only when viewed from a distance of ten feet or greater could the observer recognize the pattern as a portrait of an individual. I don't believe it, Franklin mumbled. I'm watching him do it and I still don't believe it. Truly amazing, Kaminsky gasped. Joey wasn't interested in the meaning of the words contained in the newspaper articles. He was selecting them for other qualities. The font, the boldness, italicization. That face was permanently burned into his memory the night of the murders. Joey was familiar with every nuance, every subtlety. He knew exactly what he needed in order to construct that picture before he began looking through the newspapers. That's why sometimes he wouldn't tear anything out for days on end. The right piece of the puzzle simply wasn't available. And that's just what it's like, Franklin hastened to add. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. He must have over a thousand pieces of paper. Somehow, Kaminsky slowly wagged his head from side to side in awe of Joey's accomplishment. Somehow he was able to assimilate everything in his head and blend it all into a seamless whole. The, the lines, the shading, the... Kaminsky's observations trailed off as Stouffer entered the room. Our best 
Sketch artist couldn't have done better, Franklin said sincerely. Stouffer, get a hard copy of that and run it through the computer. If this guy's got a license to drive, he'll be in our database. With a picture of this quality, we shouldn't have any trouble getting a match. No need to do that, Stouffer said airily. I can tell you who he is. Franklin and Kaminsky turned in unison and stared at Stouffer, almost as intently as they had peered at Joey's masterpiece. You've seen this guy before? Franklin asked in astonishment. Yeah, it was right after the Greenlee murders. You and I divided the suspect list, remember? You interviewed the neighbors and I talked to people who didn't live in the neighborhood but still frequented the area. Sure, I remember. Franklin nodded. You had the mail carrier, maid service, dairy service, landscapers, people like that. Right, Stouffer affirmed. So who was this guy? He was the man who delivered newspapers to the Greenlee house. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. The Death of Compulsion by Edward T. May Puzzles by Edward T. May Dr. Kaminsky, played by Hassan Nazari Rabadi Recitation and audio design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi